Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Judy Bolton Fassman. She's the author of Asylum, a memoir of family secrets from Mandel Villar Press. Her essays and reviews have appeared in major newspapers, including the New York Times and Boston Globe, essay anthologies, and literary magazines. She is the recipient of numerous writing fellowships, including the Alonzo G. Davis Fellowship for Latinx Writers at the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. She is a four-time winner of the Rock Hour Award from the American Jewish Press Association and a two-time Pushcart Prize and Best of the Net nominee. She recently received an honorable mention in Teferit's Creative Nonfiction Essay Writing Contest. Welcome, Judy. Thank you. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here. I'm really happy that you're here, and I'm excited to dig in and talk about Asylum. So for those who have not yet read your book or seen your memoir, can you explain a little bit about the story? Sure. I'll give a little background. The book started... I, I can't believe it's this long. It's almost 20 years ago. And it started mm-hmm. when I journaled the year my father died. And I was saying a prayer called the Mourner's Kaddish. Uh, it's a Jewish prayer that you say for close members of the family after they have passed away. And I really um, deliberated with how long I was going to say the prayer. Uh, traditionally, for a very close relative like a parent, you say it for a year. And uh, at the time, my, my children were young, there was, you know, logistics involved, and I, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. But my father was buried on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And I thought, well, I'm going to go 30 days, because the first 30 days in uh, Jewish mourning is significant. And before I realized it, I had found a community in my uh, temple uh, of people also saying the Kaddish, and it was Thanksgiving. And at that point, I had been journaling about it. And, you know, once a writer, always a writer. And I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just going to keep going and see what happens and see see what I come up with in my journal. Mm-hmm. And so as that continued, did you have a sense at all that you were going to write the story of your family? No, um, I, th- I thought it was it, it was a very internal document. And I think mm-hmm. that was the problem with it and why I couldn't see farther into an arc. So I finished my year of saying Kaddish. I had my journal. I I joined a writing group. I started writing it up. And I realized that I really needed to to have more to the story. I needed to know my father. I mean, after all, the Kaddish was a way for me to have a posthumous relationship with him, Mm -hmm. which I wanted very much because he was so mysterious. And so this, the writing back and forth and, you know, false starts and so on went on for a few years. And I was in Israel visiting my best friend. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of depressed. The, the writing is not going anywhere. And mm. um, I think this is just a document for my kids. And she said, no, I think that you have to find out 
people who or find people who knew your father back in the day. My, my father was a much older dad, so that was not going to be so easy. Many of his peers were no longer with us. But there was one person who I knew knew my father really well. And I had had my suspicions about my father's secrets, and I knew he would be able to confirm them better than any, you know, FOIA request that I made, mm-hmm. anything like that. He would he was really the key. And I did find him. And that just blew open my narrative, blew open the book, and suddenly I had a very different book. And that's important. I think a lot of, I think I've heard this before, where a memoirist or a would-be memoirist feels that they are stuck and that they don't understand how to proceed and that maybe it doesn't need to see the light of day. So do you feel that your friends mentioning that you really needed to keep going was the catalyst? Do you think you would have maybe stopped? Or do you think something within you might have propelled you forward? You know, looking back, um, I was, you know, everybody in their in their family plays a role. I was the curious one. Mm. And by coincidence, my name is Judy Bolton before I got before I added the Fastman to it. And Judy Bolton was a girl detective who had her own series of books in the 40s and 50s. And I sort of took on this persona of detective after I decided that I was going to find out more about my dad. And when I was a detective, and I think every memoirist is in their soul a detective. We're always looking for clues. We're always trying to, you know, seed our narrative with breadcrumbs that lead to some sort of epiphany. So I sort of kept in mind this idea of being a detective. And the other thing is, I think I was always fascinated by my father and certainly also by my mother, but by my father because he was so stoic and stern when I was a kid. We, we grew much closer when I was, you know, in my teens and um, as a young adult. But I wrote master's thesis in fine arts at Columbia University. I was, I was studying fiction at the time. I'm no longer a fiction writer. And it was a collection of short stories, as I said. And when I went back and read that thesis, I hadn't read it in years, I saw the first stirrings of asylum in there. The Mm -hmm. thesis was named for a status that my father had during the Second World War as a 90-day wonder. And there were a lot of short stories about him. I mean, granted, a young writer, I mean, I was only in my 20s then, a young writer writes biographically a lot, even Mm -hmm. if they're writing fiction. And that's certainly what I did. I certainly mined material for my life. But the first stirrings of asylum were in that thesis. That's so interesting to me. And I love the fact that you started as fiction. And so I know that you've described your memoir as speculative nonfiction. And so I what I'd love to do is find out what that means. Because anytime speculative is in a, a description, I'm always wondering, do I really understand what that means? So can you explain what speculative nonfiction is? And then I'd love to hear a little bit more about the writing you did before becoming a memoirist. Great. Well, I'm not sure what it means, Renee, but here's <laughs> here's my understanding uh, understanding of it. I had a set of facts to go on that I gleaned from research. I did my father graduated from Yale in 1940. I did research in the Yale Library, you know, with microfiche tapes and read his mm-hmm. class notes from the alumni magazine. I mean, I did all sorts, you know, I looked at his yearbooks, I found some of his classmates who were still alive. And as I said, I found this man, you know, his best friend, a family friend, who really shed light on his story. So I had that, I had those set of facts. There were certain things that I knew about my father, certain things that I could place him. I don't want to give away the, I'm trying to 
gently walk around the secret. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So, Don't so tell I, the you know, I, I could place him in certain places and those were facts. Those were, you know, he was there. But then I had to imagine a lot of it and speculate about what happened. And some of the speculation, in fact, a good deal of the speculation was based on interviews I did with his friends and with his best friend. And I sort of mixed my speculations or what I thought were speculations and even other people's speculations with those facts. And I found that for me, it yielded a profound truth. Mm, that's really interesting. And I, I was recently at a conference, a uh, really big writing conference, I'm sure you know of it, AWP. Oh, yes. Yeah. And we were presenting on memoir and a few people, it came up quite a bit. And there are a lot of panels about truth and ethics and memoir. But one student came up to me, she was, I believe, in, in a master's program and said that she had heard that you can only present absolute facts in a memoir. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm kind of trying to remember the story as accurately as I can, which is illustrative of like exactly what memoir does and can't do. Like I'm trying to remember to the best of my ability exactly what she said, and I'm going to give an idea of it. And to me, that's kind of what memoir is. There is no absolute. I mean, if you have a recording device, yes, that's an absolute quote of someone and what they said. But what this student came to me to ask was, can I report this as memoir if I don't remember accurately? And so I feel like when you call it a speculative nonfiction memoir, you're also allowing for that interpretation and some of those edges to blur a little bit and, mm -hmm. and, and acknowledging it. Well, I'll also add to that, in addition to speculative nonfiction, I mean, that's where the creative and creative nonfiction also comes through. You don't remember verbatim conversations you had, you know, two decades ago or a decade ago or however far you're going back. So that, you know, you do your best to recreate according to how you remember the truth. And, you know, to me, memoir has always been impressionistic and autobiography has always been realistic. So mm. that's that's mm -hmm. sort of where I, dr I draw the line, at least for myself and my work. I really like that. Let's just go back a little bit. So how long were you writing fiction before you started transitioning into creative nonfiction? I wrote fiction actually until I had children, uh, <laughs> which was in my early 30s. And did you find it satisfying? I found it very challenging. I just... I, I kept I kept sprinkling my fiction with my life story and with facts that I had on hand, and it didn't. It never it never felt like authentic fiction to me. It mm -hmm. always felt like it was memoir. So finally, I I made the leap in early two thousands. I uh, started writing a parenting article, parenting column, I should say, and I really enjoyed writing about my kids. They were young. I could still do that. Eventually, I had to stop doing that. At the time, I really enjoyed sharing stories about them, sharing insights about my parenting. And I got a real response to it. I did it for a Boston newspaper. And people really followed that, that column for years. That's so interesting. And I, I have a lot of overlap here because I too began with fiction when I started when my kids were small. And I too felt like I was using my life a bunch. And I don't really know how other fiction writers work. It's a little mysterious and it's their process. And I haven't actually asked. But I felt like I was sort of cheating a little bit at fiction. You know, and I found it to be a little bit challenging right before I moved over into nonfiction. 
You know, I felt the same way. I felt that cheating is a very apt word. I felt like I was just, it wasn't quite right, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't as imaginative as I had envisioned it should be or that, or that I hoped it would be. Do you know why you actually began with fiction? Do you know what made you think that that was the way to go? Well, I'm old. So when I went to graduate school, there really wasn't, wasn't work for programs in creative nonfiction. I mm. think if I knew that there were, or if I had access to that kind of writing, I think I would have come to it sooner. But I also loved making up stories. As a kid, like, I, I made up stories all the time. I mean, I was, I was kind of, you know, known for that. Not only was I curious, I was also, you know, oh, stop inventing things, Judy. You know, that was like the tagline in my family. Oh my God, she's always inventing things. She's always making things up. You know, and my mother is from Cuba and it would be like, ay, por Dios, here she goes again. Oh my God, here she goes again. So it just seemed like a natural thing for, you know, and I knew I wanted to go to graduate school in some kind of humanity and I, I loved to write and I had had some success in college with my fiction. I took fiction workshops all the way through. I won literary prizes and I thought, well, this is what I meant to do. I struggled a little bit in graduate school because I started, I was so attracted to creative nonfiction, but I didn't have the vocabulary then to talk mm -hmm. about it that way. And mm -hmm. to me, creative nonfiction is almost like a perfect melding of fictional techniques, memoir, and facts. So I real, you know, I stumbled onto it and it really worked for me. And then of course, the whole creative nonfiction movement really took off and I, I found my place in it. Mm -hmm. And when you think about your, your story and telling your family's story here, because you have siblings, right? I do. What was the reaction within your family to the story you wanted to tell and what you ended up revealing? I got into a little trouble with an aunt <laughs> because uh, she wasn't keen on um, my writing, honestly, about my grandfather. So honestly, I scrubbed, you know, some of those paragraphs. There weren't very many paragraphs in the book because they weren't germane to the story. And I didn't want to alienate her because I really love her very much. My sister was dreading the book. She respected me for doing it. She would never get in the way of my progress. She would never get in the way of my work, but she was dreading it. And, you know, many times over the years, I offered to have her read drafts of the book. And she said, no, I don't need to. I lived it because it is a mm -hmm. traumatic story in many ways. And she didn't want to relive it. Uh, when the book finally came out, she gave it to her husband and daughter to read first so they could sort of preview it for her. They mm -hmm. said, don't be silly. Go ahead and read it. You'll enjoy it. And for the most part, she did. There was one traumatic part for her that I didn't think would have been traumatic for her. There's a chapter in the book when my parents separate when we're young and we go down to Miami to my mother's Cuban family. My father, I should say, by the way, was uh, American born in New Haven, Connecticut and a Yale graduate. And, and what, you know, a major part of his identity was that he was a naval officer in the Second World War. And mm -hmm. that was a very formative part of his, um, of his life for him. Mm -hmm. So she said that she read about this, you know, in Miami, and I thought it was kind of a funny chapter, but she just remembered the homesickness. She remembered the trauma of being separated from my father for three months. Mm -hmm. She said that was the only part of the book that really stirred her, really, mm -hmm. really upset her. But other than that, she was fine. And my brother was very into it. He, uh, he helped me do some of the research. Oh, wow. And, mm -hmm. and where, where did your mother figure in 
uh, in terms of telling her story and explaining how she came to be in this family? Well, my mother needs her own book, and I think she's going to get it at some point. You know, even though it began as a book about my dad, she, you know, she, of course, is a very uh, integral part of that story. And she threatened to take over the narrative several times in the book. <laughs> she had her challenges. She was much younger than my dad. She was almost 17 years younger than my dad. They had cultural differences. They had generational differences. I mean, there was a huge gap where there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of drama, and even some trauma. And my mother's origin story, of course, is in the book, but I think, I think she deserves a more in-depth treatment at some point. Mm-hmm. And what were the unique challenges in writing this book beyond beyond the idea that I know we talked about your father having passed and a lot in his generation no longer being available to ask questions of, but what other ch- challenges did you encounter in writing it? At one point I decided I'm just going to go ahead and write it and suffer the consequences if there are consequences. I had no idea how my father's family would react to it. And I have to say my first cousins on that side of the family were were absolutely wonderful and mm. loved it and found it really fascinating. My mother's family was was not as keen on it as um, as I thought that that might happen um, because I did say I did reveal some truths about my grandfather and some truths about my mother. My mother is a good person, but she's a fantasist. And she had a lot of secrets of her own. She was also a person who had a lot of emotional challenges. And I think some members of her family thought that they didn't want her emotional difficulties and challenges revealed, which actually leads me to the title, Asylum. Can I, can mm-hmm. I tell you, can I talk about the title? Yes, I'd love you to. I grew up at 1735 Asylum Avenue in West Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> People who are not from the area think that Asylum is, and you should pardon the pun, the craziest name for a street. Like, mm-hmm. why would you name a street Asylum? In reality, <laughs> it was, and I and I hate to I hate to use this term, but this is what the term was back in the um, early 1800s. It was the site of an asylum for the deaf and the dumb. And that asylum was founded by one of Hartford's elders for his young daughter who was deaf. Mm. And that young daughter happened to have been taught by their next door neighbor. I can't remember his first name. I think it was John Gallaudet. And Gallaudet went on to be a founder of Gallaudet University, which is the premier university for the deaf. And the um, asylum was a precursor to uh, a school called the American School for the Deaf, which which had a, an international mm-hmm. reputation. So that's where asylum comes from. and has nothing to do with being an insane asylum. Well, it means a bunch of different things, too. I mean, asylum in this country, too. Well, that's exactly that was my next um, that was my next point is that my mother's family, my mother immigrated to the United States in 1958, but her family came. Uh, my grandparents, her brother, her sister, et cetera, et cetera, came in the early 60s after Castro had taken over the island and the uh, American embargo was in full force around the island. So they literally sought asylum in this country. 
And the, you know, the third one is, is the obvious connotation of asylum and connotates insanity or some mental challenges going on. And that certainly went on in the house too. So, you know, it has, it has all these layers. And to be honest with you, the title was a gift from the universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you think about how you wove together the story and the way that you struck a balance between what you knew and what you didn't know, was there anything that was particularly important to you in telling the story? You know, I, I think that I achieved the balance I wanted to because I got an email from an old friend that I haven't seen in many years. You know, full disclosure, I dated him when I was in graduate school and he he heard about the book and he found out about it and he wrote to me and he said, I remember how unkind your mother was to you at that time, but I was really impressed and amazed that you managed to portray her sympathetically. In fact, I thought she was a little bit more sympathetic than your dad, who I know you were very close to. So he said, I think the way you treated your parents was really generous and really honorable. And that really meant so much to me. And it, uh, that's exactly how I wanted it to come across. And the fact that he could that he could see that and step away from that from, mm. you know, from, from many years ago really meant a lot to me. And that comes up a bunch, too, among memoirists, which is how to write people who have caused, you know, pain in our lives and, and relationships that are complicated. So did that take effort on your part or, or did this come naturally to you? to depict them in this way? No, it didn't come naturally. And I think it was a matter of maturity. I had to literally start the book over at least two or three times because I, when I was writing angry, it, it wasn't a good book. I didn't mm. want to write angry. I didn't want to write neutrally. I wanted to write from a place of love and understanding and empathy and maturity. And it took a while to get there for me. You know, I love that you said that, writing angry, and I, I think many of us can relate to that. And I want to dig a little further into this question, because that's actually what the we were paneling on at that conference, is how you portray these complicated and, and painful relationships in a way that uh, allows the reader to have some empathy or compassion. So why, you know, I'm, it's kind of a loaded question, but why is it important to do that? Why is it important? And why was it important for you not to write angry? Why did you want to depict them in this other way? Well, you know, human beings are infinitely complicated, infinitely complicated. And um, they, they're not, you know, they're not good and bad. It's not an either or situation. And the more I could portray that complexity, the more interesting, not only because after all, even though it's memoir, these, these people that you're writing about, uh, even if it's your mother or father or whoever or whoever you're writing about, they're characters. And nobody wants to meet a one-dimensional character. It needs to be three-dimensional. And I think when your mind or your perceptions are clouded with anger, I think that you can't create a three-dimensional character. And three-dimensionality invites empathy, it invites love, it invites understanding, and those things are universal, and those are the kinds of things that hook readers in. Mm-hmm, exactly. I love that you said that. I, I'm just like, I'm like nodding and nodding and nodding. It's just so concise and perfect. That's exactly what I love about it. So what books do you turn to or have you really sought out as sort of touchstones in your own memoir process? What books do you recommend to people listening? 
Oh gosh, you know, it's so funny. I always, that's like the question of what's your favorite book. I always stutter on this question because I read, I read pretty widely and then I forget the name, the title of yeah. the book. Well, can you think of, and of, you know, I tried to take, I used to ask what is your favorite memoir or your favorite books, but I think that puts a lot of pressure on people. And so how about the ones that have been very useful to you or the ones that you've gone back to again and again, or that always come up for you? I read a lot of Daddy memoirs. I read Patricia Lockwood's memoir. I read Kate Mulgrew's memoir about her parents. So I was trying to I was trying to get a feel for how people were portraying their parents in a in a more empathetic way. Those were two memoirs that I went to. I will say that even though I just read it and I'm actually talking to this author this afternoon, Aileen Weintraub's book has a lot in common with my memoir in terms of her portrayal of her father. He, mm -hmm. it's, it's called Knock Down, and mm -hmm. it's really, it's, it's about her high-risk pregnancy, but it's also about her relationship with her dad. And I think she did a brilliant job of presenting a very complex man whom she loved. Mm-hmm. Yes, I met Aileen actually last week or two weeks ago. So that's that's next on my list to read. Not it's down. terrific. It's terrific. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. And also, here's another thing I noticed in your bio is that you have a lot of fellowships. You have fellowships at Virginia Center for Creative Arts, the Mineral School in Mineral Washington, and the Vermont Studio Center. And so can you share a bit about having gotten fellowships and the process for you and what that offered you? Well, first of all, it offered me time. And particularly when I, I have been to the Virginia Center for Creative Arts for, for three times. And the last time I had a full fellowship, which was which was lovely. And it just it just gave me as a mother and a wife time, time, time away from responsibilities, even if it was only two weeks. You know, I just I just immersed myself in the book, and I really could not have done it without that. I also went to the Atlantic Center for the Arts, was which was sort of a kind of fellowship, but it was what they call an associate artist, and that was for three weeks. You know, I had a writing group there, but we were mentored by Richard McCann, who sadly passed away about a year and a half ago. And I had, you know, I mentioned him in my acknowledgments. He was very patient and very key in getting this this memoir off the ground. And that was also very helpful. So it's really just time and space mm -hmm. and not having to make dinner. That's why I, I, I like these fellowships. It's a little less important now that my kids are grown and I have the house to myself and so on. But, but still, it's nice to have dinner made for you. It's nice to be spoiled. I was particularly spoiled at the mineral school where Jane Hodges, who runs the, the fellowship, she's absolutely wonderful, would not even let the writers and artists in residence bust the tables. Oh, wow. She, she wanted us to be completely responsibility free from those kinds of things. And she wow. was just wonderful. She was just wonderful. It was That's a, a gift. That's it, really a gift. And you're right. You know, I can see how I could negotiate with myself once my kids are, are grown out of the house, how it's not as necessary or important. But I think to have that time and space is vital as an artist when you don't have to juggle anything. So Judy, can you just tell me real quick about how competitive you feel the fellowships are and how how much you feel like it took out of you to apply for them well you know writers are are used to kind of being punched around a little bit in terms of rejection 
Um, it took me, you know, sometimes the second, the third, the fourth time is the charm. I just got a rejection from Yado. It's like my third one. Am I going to apply again in two years? Yes, absolutely. You never know. It, you know, mm-hmm. it's the same with, with sending your work around. You know, you, you just keep trying. The named fellowships like the VCCA one and the Mineral School one and even, you know, Virginia, uh, Vermont Studio Center, I think there's, you know, competition. You know, it's kind of like hard for me to assess because I was the one that got the fellowships. But I would, right, I, right, I would right. imagine that there was that, that there was competition. And I would, you know, and I would absolutely encourage everybody to keep trying, keep trying, keep trying, and to keep writing, which correlates with um, what I want to say about that to people out there. I know this sounds kind of obvious and maybe, you know, trite, but don't give up. This is my first published book, and it happened when I was 60. And I emphasize that it's my first published book in that it wasn't really my first attempt at a book. There were a couple mm. of them sitting in desk drawers, and probably will never see the light of day because I'm, I'm a different writer now and I'm a different person and I don't want them to be out there at this point. But, um, but I want to say in particular to the women out there, keep doing your art. Your musings on the back of envelopes is writing. You know, when you get a chance mm-hmm. to journal, that's writing. Your sketching on napkins is art. Your sketching when you're, if you're a mom in the carpool line is art. If you're commuting by subway or bus or train and you're doing and you're sketching or you're writing things down that's art it all goes towards something even if you don't know exactly what that is just keep doing it the accumulation of it will be very powerful and it will be very useful to you and there's no expiration there's no age limit on your dreams keep doing it Ooh, shivers. So good. I love that. And it makes me feel good about those little scraps of paper I'm always doodling on. And I remember even years ago, before I was in a program for writing, before I'd even published a story, even being at a concert for children or like some kind of music festival and having an idea and just jotting it down on a piece of paper and then taking that piece of paper and putting it in a special pile to look at later and then folding it into a story or the beginning of a poem or something. So I absolutely love that advice. Well, I was going to say you capture in real time something that you may not actually remember going back and saying, what did I want to say? You know, I mean, it really, it, it's, re- it's really very useful. Yes, those impulses. I, I love how that advice really captures that these impulses we have to say something or express ourselves or if we're moved by something actually are telling us something about what we care about and what we want to spend more time with. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being my guest, Judy. This was really fun. Thank you so much, Ronit. I had such a great time. It was such a pleasure to connect with you and to speak with you. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.